Aren't you thankful to be able to assemble on an occasion like we have this morning to offer worship to the great God of heaven? What a great blessing. What a tremendous honor, in fact. As we come to this part of our worship service, the appreciation is set before us in Acts 20, verse 7, among other places, to consider a section of the Word of God. I'd like to use this as maybe an opportune time to make mention of a thing or two. First of all, go ahead and make plans. I know you have, but be back with us tonight for our worship service at 530. During the lesson at that time, we'll consider a bit about Joseph and the birth of Jesus. We looked at Mary last Sunday evening. Tonight, we're going to look at it from Joseph's perspective. Also, next Sunday, I'm planning at this point in the morning to, a bit, to do a lesson involving a bit of reflection on the year of 2015. So I hope that you look forward to that to at least challenge each of us to think about the myriad of ways that God has blessed us here at the Pippin family this year. And we'll do at least a part of that during the, le the lesson next Lord's Day morning. Certainly as we come to the question of the hour today, you can see it on the wall to my left. Isn't it true that these opening comments are so very appropriate? We know the specialness in what's involved in becoming a Christian. That initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in fact the greatest single question any individual can ask is what must I do to be saved? In fact, it was the Philippian jailer who expressed it exactly in Acts 16, verse 30. And thanks be unto God that Paul and Silas shared with him the marvelous wonder of obedience to the gospel. And that man was baptized that very night. However, might we immediately notice, we might change that question slightly. The question of the title, what must I do to remain saved? Once a person has known the sweetness of fellowship with God, and once an individual has lived in the marvelous light of that goodness, what must that person continue to do in order to stay saved? Over the next few moments this morning, why don't we look at that, partly because the Word of God has so much to say about it, but also as the year 2016 is standing right on the doorstep, if you please, Maybe it's a good time to at least begin to make or think about natures of things that you and I might change in our life to be stronger, better, more faithful servants to God in the coming year. So question, what must you and I do as Christians to stay saved? As we turn the slide, one of the first things it would seem to me entirely fair to do would be to reflect ever so briefly upon just what it is to be the kind of individuals you and I now are. I've entitled it simply, Obedience to the Gospel. Could I ask you for a moment to remember the day you obeyed the gospel? Maybe that was a year ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was 35 or 40 or more years ago. As you think back, consider with me just a moment the amazing change that took place. Prior to that, you lived in sin. You were separated from God. You were, in fact, an alien from Him, in the words of Ephesians 2.12. But yet, you chose and made a marvelous decision on that occasion. You obeyed the gospel. And when you did, look at what some of the things that happened. You realized that Jesus Christ tasted death for you. You came to realize and you acted upon that knowledge because in Hebrews 2.9 it says, We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. You realize that he hanged on the cross for you. And in a great outpouring of love, you chose to submit to him. 
Not only that, you will appreciate that He thus paid the sin sacrifice for you. You as an alien sinner at that point in your life were such that you were far distant from God and your sins didn't allow you to come before Him, but Jesus took your place. Those nails were driven into His body and that blood that He shed that allowed you to be cleansed. He added you to His church. Jesus does have a body, of course, that spiritual body existent today. And we here at Pippin are one of the families, if you please, of that great organization. Christ added you to the church. You didn't join the church. Nobody else added you, but in fact, Jesus did. He added you to His body. And might you notice then, the New Testament speaks of a number of blessings that you enjoyed because of that. You had fellowship with God, 1 John 1, verses 5-7. through 7. You had fellowship with other Christians. You were part of a family that mattered and was destined for heaven. All of that happened on that day you were baptized. However, to, to stop the story there is to miss a great many of the remaining teachings found in the Word of God. Because notice point number two. At that moment you were saved and what a wonderful feeling it was. But let's also be realistic. Jesus and the other inspired individuals of the New Testament so quickly point out to us a Christian can nonetheless still become lost. Let's highlight that very quickly because after all, that's going to be a significant matter pointing to the lesson of the morning. What must I do to stay saved? I need to carefully recognize I can still be lost. Look at how the inspired writers developed this with me briefly. I would ask you to consider, in Galatians 5 verse 4, Paul very expressly wrote to the churches of Galatia. So he was writing to individuals who had known the wonders of salvation. He wrote to the church. And he told them, if you turn again and follow that particular law of Moses, you are fallen from grace. I believe we each appreciate that association to the grace of God testifies to their obedience initially to it, and it's manifested in the marvelous character of their obedience there too. But to fall from it means they had become lost or they would become lost again. Let's build that more thoroughly like this. So what are some of these behaviors, these sins, these choices that would make a Christian again be lost? The New Testament identifies that there are some doctrinal sins. That is to say, one can begin to believe what's not taught in the Bible. One can begin to approve and defend and support that which is not biblically accurate. And as a result, that person may eventually forfeit his or her salvation. In 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, listen to the rather stern way that the Apostle Peter presents this idea. He says, there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Let's pause to note this. As Peter wrote to the hearers on that occasion, he said, don't be beside the fact there were false prophets among the ancient people of Israel. He said, there's going to be false teachers among you. Now let's face it, what reason would there be to present a warning with regard to false teachers if it wasn't possible for a person to lose his salvation? 
If these false teachers, of course, teach what's opposed to the Word of God and then individuals believe it, they follow it, they adhere to it, they endorse it and practice it, then they become just as lost as the teachers are. Peter warns his hearers, be ever aware of the truthfulness presented in that which is the Word of God. It is with that in mind, notice the warning of 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. And thus, there are certain dangers presented by way of false teaching and false doctrine, and you and I as Christians must be aware of it so we never subscribe to it. But might we also notice that's by no means not the only dangers the New Testament presents before us. There are also dangers of neglect, dangers of omission, and dangers of failure. In Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, really it continues on to verse 46 in that chapter, Jesus presented before us a rather vivid description of the judgment. We all remember how that goes. There was a division. There were those on the left and there were those on the right. And to those on the right, he made mention of a tremendous honor. You did what it was involved in obedience and therefore enter into the joys of thy Lord. But to those on the left, might we ask, what sins had they committed? Those on the left, was it murder? Was it adultery? Was it various and sundry other things such as those works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 and following? The answer is no. We remember what they had done. They had failed. I was in prison, and you never came to me. I was sick, and you never visited me. I was hungry, and you never gave me anything to eat. I was thirsty, and you never gave me anything to drink. One by one, these things you failed on, and now go off into eternal judgment, off into eternal perdition. You'll notice that caused them to be lost. It's not that they'd believe false doctrine. It's not that they'd practiced falsehood. They had simply failed. One of the things you and I have to sternly then keep in mind is in order to stay saved, in order to remain in that condition of being saved, we have to appreciate the application of these benevolent matters spoken of in texts like that one. And we'll develop that more thoroughly in just a minute. As you and I close that slide together, so many warnings in the New Testament are given to you and to me. Warnings that ask us to keep in mind the fact we can ultimately be lost if we aren't faithful. We all remember about that dog that turned again to its vomit and that sow that was washed or wallowing in the mire. Someone took the time, and we know it was the Lord Jesus, to wash that hog, that pig, and we know it became so clean and sinless and spotless, and yet it went right back into the mire. Second Peter 2, verses 21 and 22. That was a warning to all of us that we were cleansed in baptism. We were washed clean by the blood of Christ. But we can go back to the mire if we aren't careful, back into a place that makes us lost. One final text then at the bottom would be those examples provided to you and me in the New Testament. People who did this very tragic thing like Demas. Demas had been in some way a companion of Paul, but Paul said, he's forsaken me and gone back to the world. Demas liked what he saw here more than he thought about heaven, and that's a tragedy. Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence among them, 3 John verse 9, and John said, I'll deal with him when I come. 
Here was one who was a member of the church, but look what he did. He caused ruckus and turmoil and strife and division, and John said, I'll deal with him when I come. Here was one who wasn't right with God, that Diotrephes fella. Thus, you and I notice points one and two, how sweet it is to obey the gospel initially. A child of God can be lost. Point number three. When we come to think about this one, you'll notice the lesson text of this morning presents before us the central summary. What must I do to remain saved? What must you do to remain saved? Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and let's look again at what the Master Himself told the church in Smyrna. I'll begin reading in verse number 8 so that we get the full discussion of what Jesus told that congregation. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. The first point Jesus asserted in verse number 8, I'm the first and the last. I was dead indeed, but now I'm alive forevermore. Verse number 9, I know thy works. The Lord was thoroughly acquainted with the church at Smyrna. He knew what they did. He knew what they didn't do. He went on to say, I know thy tribulation and thy poverty, but thou art rich. He knew the sense in which they were poor. He knew the sense in which they were suffering challenges and difficulties. He says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews that are not but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus said, I know those that are hypocrites. I know those that are just pretending. They're not really in this for the thoroughness and for the greatness with which I have invested it. There still are some today who you and I know who sometimes can be very hypocritical. You probably have known folks like that in your life. Jesus says, I know them. Look at verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. There was something lying in the future for the church at Smyrna, and notice it involved some difficulty. The devil's going to cast some of you, Jesus said, into prison. He gave them a picture of the future. For a period of time, the persecution is going to be extreme. I wonder what lies ahead for you and me next year. Not a one of us knows for sure. We may know some generalities, but the detailed specifics are concealed from us. Jesus told the church in Smyrna what was ahead, but what did He give them as the single set of advice in order to endure it? Verse 10 closes like this, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. You notice Jesus didn't tell them, Work miracles. He didn't tell them to go and let some apostle lay hands on them. He didn't tell them anything like that. The only advice He gave them, you be faithful unto death. No matter what happens, no matter what befalls you, no matter what comes your way, you be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. What powerful words of advice. What powerful commandments. As you and I develop that, you'll notice that was written to the church in Smyrna. It wasn't written to alien sinners, for they can't be faithful. They've never become faithful. It was written to Christians. He said, you Christian, you be faithful. Not only that, might I ask you to notice, the work of the devil was working against them. It's the devil that will cast you into prison. It's the devil that's going to cause hardships and trials of your faith. 
But you be faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. Maybe a couple of last thoughts. That by no means is the only time that principle is found in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, you'll notice in a sense there, Jesus commented in this way. He said, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. You've got to endure to the end. It wasn't enough to be baptized at one time. That was a marvelous start, but that's just the commencement. One must live faithful till death. The questions then are so many to you and to me. Am I living faithful till death? How about you? I can't expect to be saved if I don't. The Lord Jesus Christ conditioned your eternal salvation and mine on living faithfully till death. Faithful till death. Maybe one last thought. This requirement stated in James 1 verse 12, doesn't it remind us of something? Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he has tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. It's one thing to be tempted. It's another to endure it courageously and faithfully. Are you doing that? How about me? The first three points of the lesson have set before us the beauty of becoming a Christian, the danger that you and I can be lost. But then part number three, these warnings you and I have just seen attached to the demand of faithfulness. I suppose any of us though could ask, that word faithful seems to be somewhat broad. What are some specifics in the Bible? So what do I, Randy Bybee, need to be doing in the year 2016 to ensure that I stay saved? And you could put your name in that list too. What had I better be doing in order to remain saved? Well, let's start developing like this. The greatest of all the commandments, and we know that's true because it was asked of Jesus. What is the greatest of the commandment? Stated in Matthew chapter 22 and echoed again in Mark chapter 12. And the Lord without hesitation said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. If that was the greatest of the Old Testament commandments, and if that was such that our God doesn't change, doesn't it follow that that's still the most basic and greatest of the commands? So what about it? Do you and I love God with all of the fibers of our being? Do we devote ourselves thoroughly, entirely, completely, and fully to Him and His service? You'll notice I would ask you to appreciate that that was a fourfold presentation, wasn't it? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That encompasses the fullness of your mental capabilities and mind. It encompasses the fullness of your physical capabilities. It encompasses the fullness of your energies, talents, skills, and capabilities. Do you and I love God the way that verse commands us to do it? If not, there's work for you and me to do in the next year, or I shouldn't expect to stay saved. Look at how it's presented in 1 John 4 verse 9. We love Him because He first loved us. We look about us and see the wonder of His creation. We appreciate the infinity that is Him, but we also see the love He's extended to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we love Him because He first loved us. 
you'll perhaps notice that that love that we have for God immediately finds necessitation in our obedience. The New Testament does not separate our love for God with our submission to His commandments. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5 verse 3 reads, Didn't Jesus say in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In John 15, 14, He said, You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. You'll notice one by one as we appreciate, it seems as though we are forced to begin here. Everything that we do thus then develop as a result of our love for Him. But the New Testament doesn't stop there. Because after all, what about the next one? Number B, if you will. In that same discussion that you and I considered earlier, we notice there that not only was the first commandment mentioned by Christ, but He also quickly gave note to the second one. And the second, He said, is like to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now that was, of course, quoted from Leviticus 19, directly out of the Old Testament, and the Lord applied it to you and me today. And so why don't we speak about that for just a moment? Again, we might ask, if this is the second greatest commandment, doesn't it follow that it's still vitally significant? Do you and I love our neighbor as the New Testament would have us do it? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Some initial thoughts. First of all, 1 John 4 verse 20 connects this with the love for God. Didn't they on that occasion the inspired writer say, How can a man then claim to love God when he doesn't love his neighbor? For in fact, how can he not love one who he has seen and yet claim to love one who he's not seen? You'll notice that description puts a very heavy load upon you and me, doesn't it? Do I love my neighbor? As I should. Do you love your neighbor as you should? And we remember that Jesus in Luke chapter 10 gave a description of who our neighbor is. It's anyone whom you and I can find means whereof we can assist. It's not just someone that physically lives next door. It may include that person, but it may include a lot of others. Do we love them as we should? I shouldn't expect to stay saved if I don't. You'll notice one set of final thoughts. If we love them, what then did Jesus say that prompted Him to do? In Mark 10, verses 44 and 45, out of His consideration of love in that way, He said, I give my life a ransom for many. He paid the price, of course, for all of us, and His love motivated Him to do that. Why didn't the Lord come down from the cross? It's because love bound Him there. He knew that without His sacrifice, none of us could be saved. Surely, in light of that, you'll notice this Good Samaritan then highlights before us in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. We will remember about the priest and the Levite who passed by the other side. The poor wounded man was left there. It was a Samaritan that offered assistance, and Jesus then said, Go and do thou likewise. Do you and I go and do likewise? Do we love our neighbor to offer assistance and helpfulness in ways we can? What about point three? What must I do to stay saved? Love God. Love neighbor as self. What about three? 
Jesus very specifically put it like this in Matthew chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, verse number 33 of chapter 6, He said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Lord very carefully noted, and it's also true both in Greek and in English, the word first is there, an adjective descriptive of the manner in which the seeking must be done. We somewhat highlighted this earlier as we looked at the love for God, didn't we? What about seeking the kingdom? These lead to very personal questions, don't they? Randy, are you seeking the kingdom first? Put your name in the same sentence if you would. If we aren't, then change is in order in the year 2016. In fact, needs to be done rapidly. Look at the way this first description is presented. Isn't it so very much the case that just being religious is not enough to save anybody? Because many religious people are going to be lost at the day of judgment. Jesus said that. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Now you'll notice on that occasion, religious folks... They were speaking about the name of the Lord. They had even done things like casting out devils or at least claimed to do that in His name. But you'll notice Jesus said, Get away from me. I never knew you. Now here were individuals who had never come into a covenant relationship with the Master. Might we ask it today? What if a person has become a member of the body of Christ? But then a time comes that he stops or she stops seeking the kingdom first. Well, you'll notice the Lord otherwise gave that description later. He said, I know you not. He had known them at one time, but at that moment he didn't because they'd become unfaithful. What a strong message for you and for me. Are you seeking the kingdom first? Am I doing it? We know the kingdom is the church. So are you here for every service of the church? Every one of them. The worship services and the Bible assemblies, the cases in which we come together to offer worship and study to the God of heaven. If we're not here, how can we claim to be seeking the kingdom first? Not only that, you'll notice what an issue and priority the entirety of the Word of God puts before us. That word first forevermore nails down where the seeking of the kingdom has to be. First, second is enough to get you lost. Third is enough to get you lost. If the kingdom isn't first, you and I won't expect to make it to heaven. What about the next point? So far as we've looked at these, it causes us to question now the next one. What about personal growth, you and me individually? The New Testament highlights God's necessity as He sets before us the importance of growing. It's such an exciting thing to see a baby grow. It brings such a sweetness to our appreciation to notice he or she is growing physically and mentally and socially and emotionally. But spiritually, when you and I are baptized, we're a babe in Christ. 1 Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. We have to grow. The Bible puts it like a demand in ways like this. You'll notice in James 1.27... 
I've asked you to consider this issue of personal growth. Purity is demanded. Are you living purely? Am I? Are you doing things that you know are shady from a spiritual perspective? Are you doing things that you just simply aren't convinced that are right? You need to stop them. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. You and I give thought then to consider it's not enough to start living purely. We must grow in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Have you grown in the year 2015 spiritually? How about me? I can't answer that for you and you can't answer that for me. But God does demand it. Consider these challenges. You'll notice particularly in 2 Peter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, there's a description given that reads like this. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Are you and I seeking to add those things? I pray that we are. I trust that we are. Because you'll notice we must, because Peter went on to say, He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten he was purged from his old sins. In order to make our calling and election sure, we have to add those things. Are you and I doing that? This issue of personal growth then brings us to maybe think about another one. One by one, these are very challenging things, aren't they? What about the fifth one? The individual duties that come your way and mine. These may be very individual. What about your actions, men, as a father, as a husband? Ladies, what about your life as a mother, as a wife? What about each of us who are working as employees? Are we setting forth in all these avenues and means of life the features and characteristics that would send to the message of those around us the fact that we're Christians. These individual duties, of course, extend to children. Youngsters, are you obeying your parents like the Bible commands you to do it? God doesn't leave any of us out, and aren't we thankful for that? We know what He expects of us, and may we dutifully strive to do it. You'll notice among those duties, I've listed several things to those members and families, may we think about those urgently in this coming year. God wants our families, our physical families, to be the sweet paradises that are a foretaste of heaven. May we strive to make it so. As you close that thought, though, those individual duties, it does beg many questions. Maybe there's great improvements we each should be making to be a better dad, to be a better mother, to be a better husband and wife, to be a better example of faithfulness. Maybe you'll notice in number six, we stated this a little bit earlier in one sense, but it seems as though the way the New Testament presents it, it's very much wise to list it this way as well. Earlier, you and I talked about growing. Are you growing and am I growing? God put it like this. You put out a seed, and as it grows, you and I look forward to the time it bears fruit. It's not enough for the plant to grow. It needs to bear fruit. God says the same thing's true of Christians. 
He expects us to bear fruit. Would you consider with me John 15, 8? Jesus said there that ye may bear much fruit. As He spoke to those apostles, He knew what was about to befall them in light of the persecution, but what a principle. God expected them to bear much fruit, and in Romans 7, 4, that principle is extended to every one of us too. Are you bearing fruit for the Lord? What about me? Think about what talents and abilities and capabilities you have. Are you employing it in a way to benefit His kingdom? Are you bearing fruit for Him? May we each do that because God expects it. Isn't there a rather serious principle in Luke 13, verses 6 and following? When Jesus came to the fig tree and He cursed it because it wasn't bringing forth fruit, He said, it's cumbering the ground. Are you and I cumbering the ground without bringing forth any fruit? If so, we shouldn't expect to stay saved. We're going to be lost. Are you bearing fruit for the Master? We say all those things and include one more, and then the lesson is yours. What else does the New Testament help us appreciate? The Great Commission puts it like this, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Matthew wrote it in these words, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the world. Luke put it like this in Luke 24, beginning in verse 46. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins could be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Teaching others. We certainly do that by example. That is to say, we set before others the priority and the principle of a godly Christian life. But we also realize the gospel is a, is a taught thing. The gospel isn't appreciated by osmosis alone. It must be spoken and taught. In fact, didn't Jesus Himself commission, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul said that God has found it wise to save those through the avenue of preaching. What about you and me? Are we employing our tongue? Are we speaking in the way we should up for Christ? Or are we a silent partner? Among the things at the top of that slide, you'll notice that Jesus sets before us the reality that individuals are immortal spirits. They're going to stand before God in judgment and we don't want them lost. We hope that they will obey. May you and I teach them as we have opportunity and as we have the privilege of doing it. What must I do to stay saved? What must I do to continue saved? That's been our study today. As we come to that summary at the bottom, we found a number of observations. First, what a blessedness it is to be a Christian, but it is possible for a Christian to be lost. Therefore, we must be careful, always on guard, watchful and vigilant. With that in mind, we've seen we must be faithful till death. And that faithfulness, you and I have studied seven things that go into it. Loving God, loving our neighbor, putting the kingdom first, appreciating personal growth, bearing fruit, teaching others. May you and I in wisdom then seek to stay saved if we already are. At this time, let's offer an invitation.
It may be there's someone in this audience that's never become a Christian. I hope you'll want to start your life today with Jesus. The plan of salvation demands that you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If you have begun that walk, though, you were saved at that time, but don't you want to stay saved? These are things we've got to be doing. If we haven't implemented them, let's do so in the coming year. Let's proceed to do so in strength and in power and in might. If we could help someone return to your first love today, we'd be happy to do that too. We'd pray to God for you as you repent and confess those sins. If we could help you, why don't you come even now while together we stand and while we sing.